forms how we live out the day-to-day part of our lives. Uh, If you missed, it'd be good to have a listen online. It's never a good form to say about one's own words. You should have a listen to what I say, so forgive me, but you should have a listen to what I say. (laughs) Because that lesson, it's the point isn't the beauty of the content, though one could argue it was beautiful content. That point wasn't that. The point is that as we're listening through to have these interior bubbling up things, say, ah, yes, that's for me, that's now. That's how I inform the bigger life in this context. So if you missed, I would encourage you to have a listen online. So I thought it would be good on the basis of a few conversations that I've had over the last few weeks to have an interim lesson before our next long lesson about um, some concepts that we've wrestled with together as a community. And after those conversations, I realized it was important for me, and so I thought maybe for our whole community to go back and bring things that might be sitting tacitly in the back of our minds explicitly to the front of our minds to, uh, to help us massage them into our day-to-day experience. Uh, important concepts that affect how we live our lives, how they shape, and these concepts, how we act and react, how we live. So today I want to review some big, important concept kind of thoughts about God. Now, if you're new to our community or if you haven't attended one of Michelle's newcomer lunches, here's something you need to know about our community, who we are and what we do and why we do it the way that we do it. We are the way we are because we started our community with a singular question. Uh, It's the subtitle of the book that I wrote to uh, welcome newcomers and help them catch up. And the question was this, can we still be Christian? Uh, Can we still be Christian in the quantum era is the way that we put it in the book. But the, the question, can we still be Christian, resonated because the answer was not immediately obvious that the answer would be yes. There was a day when the word Christian was a respected word. There was a day when people said they were Christians and that meant that they were committed to virtue, that they were committed to loving their neighbor, even committed to loving their enemy. There was a day when if a Christian moved in next door, you thought to yourself, oh, we'll be getting a good neighbor. And then what happens happened. We Christians, we lost our way. It is our way to lose our way. But when we were first starting our community, we didn't yet understand the corollary to that truth. Yes, it is our way to lose our way, but throughout history, a tradition remains a tradition because when it loses its way, it has something baked into the system that we find our way again. Along the way, we finally realize that it is our way to lose our way, but it is also our way to find our way again, and we've jumped into the endeavor of finding our way again. I often need to apologize to people on behalf of our tradition, and I will say something along the lines of, I'm sorry that we are not very good neighbors right now. We did get kind of wrapped around a toxic version of our story, and it's made us bad neighbors more often than not. I'm sorry, but give us 50 years. We're in the process of finding our way again. These things tend to take a couple of hundred, maybe a hundred years. And so we we, we are in the process now of finding again the deep light that we have accessed 
time and time and time and time again for thousands of years. And we are accessing it again right now, and we will find our way. And we know that now, but when we were starting NRCC, we did not know that. We had not yet thrown in our lot with finding our way again. And most of us had come from some toxic or painful or damaging version of Christian life. And we had almost given up. And most people who came in those early years, this was kind of their last stop before they chucked the whole thing. And so we were asking ourselves, can we still be Christian? We did a lot of soul searching, asking ourselves what went wrong, why, did we behave, why do we behave badly, and why do we do it so often? And we began to realize that there is something about the story that we tell ourselves, our story about ourselves, our story about what is good and beautiful in life, our story about what is ugly and mean in life. Our story had gotten tweaked. And because our story had gotten tweaked, we had gotten tweaked. So we did a lot of work rethinking our story, which was demanding. It's difficult work. It's interior work, it's a frightening work, and yes, it's transformative of our lives, and yes, it helps us find our way again, but I have to tell you, it is tough work. So for years, a lot of our lessons began with the word rethinking. We were rethinking what we thought we knew. We were rethinking the Bible and rethinking sin and rethinking God and Jesus and praying and meditating. We were rethinking confession, rethinking peacemaking. We were rethinking the whole shoot and match. It was a series of exercises in which we tried to find what in our tradition isn't working, what in our tradition is painful, what in our tradition is toxic, what in our tradition has become meaningless. And then we begin to look for the thing under the toxic thing. And we begin to say, let's go back in history, let's go back in time, let's go back in our heritage, and let's find out when we strip all the layers that have accumulated over the centuries off of that thing, where was the truth at the bottom? Where was the beauty at the bottom? We decided not to do what everybody else does and just exit. We decided that we wouldn't just become spiritual but not religious. We decided that we would contend for the restoration of our tradition. And to do that, we started stripping it away and say, if all the, for all these things, what was the original impetus, the starting place for this thing that made this thing true and made this thing beautiful for people so that it has lasted as long as it has? Why did the thing, why did the thought, why did the practice, why did it start? Why has it hung on so long? What was the good thing that it gave to people? What was the light or the life that people found in the thing? What was at the core that has made it hang around for as long as it has? And can we strip back the meaninglessness? And can we strip back the ugliness? And can we discern the core, the true core, the beautiful core? And the concept of God, that's about as bedrock a religious concept as there is. And we did a lot of work stripping back to find out what is true and beautiful about our way of thinking about God. Depending on how you tell the story of God, it can point your life to goodness and beauty, or it can shackle you with instincts, instincts that betray. It can make us good people. It can make us not good people. It can make us true and loving people. It can make us not true and not loving people. So we spend a considerable amount of energy rethinking God. 
And in these last couple weeks, I had these conversations that I had, particularly those who were in some pain, it occurred to me that I needed to bring these reconsidered ideas back up to the front of my mind for a little while, and perhaps we together as a community would benefit from the same exercise, to think about how we think about God. Now, as I said during our contemplative practice, Lectio Divina, this morning, one of our most ancient truths is that God cannot be contained. God cannot be captured in a picture that we draw. God cannot be captured in a statue that we fashion. Our earliest Hebrew texts forbade us to even try. No graven images. That's the way that we told it. Here are a couple of representative texts that talk about this theme that has been flowing along from the beginning of our tradition. Can you build a house for God? However God is, it's not like that. The highest heavens couldn't contain God. Here's another. That, that first one, by the way, is both in Chronicles and then quoted again in Acts. Here's one from Isaiah. God thoughts, if you can call them that, are as unlike people thoughts as the infinite heavens are unlike the dirt under our feet. So here's the upshot of this ancient idea. It's actually called the doctrine of transcendence or the doctrine of ineffability. You don't need to know those words. Those are theology nerd kinds of things. But it basically says this, God cannot be contained in our minds. God cannot be contained in any metaphor that we create and use in our minds. Consequently, trying to get our ideas about God right, that's kind of a fool's errand. It's never going to happen. We're never going to have an image big enough, a construct that is rich enough, we're never going to get it right. If you're familiar with the word holon, it applies here. Here's a way to think about that word. <clears throat> the divine is forest and the human is tree. In other words, forest as a hierarchical construct can contain tree. But tree in that same hierarchical construct cannot contain forest. It just doesn't work. There are layers of hierarchical containability. That's why the, in our ancient texts, the greatest sin was not atheism. The greatest sin had nothing to do with sex. The greatest sin had nothing to do with drugs or rock and roll. The greatest sin had nothing to do with lying and cheating and stealing. It wasn't about moral behaviors. The greatest sin in the ancient text was idolatry. The greatest sin in our ancient text was trying to reduce the irreducible divine to something that we could grasp and hold on to and be sure about. Because once we do that, once we assume we've got God figured out, first, by definition, we're wrong. But second, then what we do is we tend to justify all kinds of horrible things in the name of what God wants. The ancient wisdom understood how badly this would go for us and forbade it. The greatest sin was to make God containable, to make God predictable. Because if you make God predictable, you make God controllable. And once we do that, once we can anticipate God's next move, once we can predict what God's next move is, we can work with that. Then we can get God on our side and we can get God with us against our enemies, against the bad people, against the other people. And that, our tradition has taught us, is our greatest sin. Now here's 
where this gets a little tricky. Because we, you and I, every human being, we fashion meaning-making narratives. Remember part three of the lesson we just finished. We all do that. Everybody has a meaning-making story. And everybody finds themselves in that story, positions themselves in that story, and that story helps them navigate what they do next in their lives. Now, we saw in that last lesson that very few of us actually see our meaning-making narratives. Very few of us are actually aware of what they are. We just tend to let them dictate the terms of our lives without our knowledge. But one of the perennial dangers that happens when we are hammering out our meaning-making stories is that we tend to have some way of thinking about ultimacy. And one of the best code words for ultimacy is God. And when we have in our meaning-making story something about God or ultimacy, one of the things that is a perennial danger is that we fix that story about ultimacy. We fix that story about God and we fix it in some construct or some story or another. And that's bad for us because given enough time, it will make us bad people. It'll weaken our souls it will thwart our spiritual journeys. Once we fix our instincts about what God does and what God doesn't do, about who God likes and who God doesn't like, about who God loves and who God hates, over time, not surprisingly, in our stories and in our minds, usually God starts loving and hating pretty much who we love and who we hate. Now, because it impacts us so deeply, you will hear me repeat this truism all the time. What we look for is what we find. You hear me say that all the time. And it's because it's such an impacting dynamic in our lives. Once we tell our stories in a fixed way about what God is, that determines what we look for. And then it begins to determine what we find. There is plenty of evidence out there to support God hating who I hate, God loving who I love. You can find all the evidence we need if that's what we're looking for. So when we do what we do to try and escape the discomfort of uncertainty and to take God out of the realm of the unknowable mystery, once we pin God down to being this way or being that way, what we look for tends to come in terms of this way or that way. And given that God can't be pinned down to any fixed truth, when our religion stops working for us, when we become brittle or angry or indignant, when we become hypocritical or mean-spirited, when we get bored with our religion, when it becomes dreary, drudgery to get through our religion, when it makes us worse people rather than making us better people, a good place to look for the source of the problem is the story that we have told ourselves about God. Here's a bit of the problem that we face. Yes, it's true. Words cannot contain God. Yes, it's true that metaphors cannot contain God. Yes, it's true that thoughts cannot contain God. But it turns out that all you and I have are words and metaphors and thoughts. That's all we've got, which creates a little bit of a pickle. Back when our community was kind of working through this and it was on the front burner for us together, uh, when we were challenging our fixed God instincts, I ran into a quote out of one of Joseph Campbell's books. Uh, the guy he was quoting was a religious anthropologist. His name is Heinrich Zimmer, Heinrich Zimmer. And he said this, <clears throat> The best things 
can't be talked about. What we've just been saying, ineffable, too big to contain. The best things can't be talk about, talked about. The second best things are us trying to talk about the thing that can't be talked about. <laughs> because it turns out that when we human beings experience the richest things we experience, the most beautiful things we experience, it's often when we are trying to talk about that which can't be talked about. Now, the third best things, he said, that's the stuff we end up talking about. <laughs> so, what makes religion beautiful is that what we are trying to do can't be done, but we try anyway. We try and speak about that which cannot be spoken. And we create a language of aspiration. We create a language of deep hope and deep yearning. We put into language the deepest longings of our humanity. But even as we are doing that, our tradition comes with a corollary warning and it says, be careful. When you were doing this beautiful thing, when you were trying to talk about that which cannot be talked about, you must keep in mind that all of our efforts to speak about God are inadequate. They are temporary. They are passing metaphors and they will inevitably break down. That's the necessary caveat if we are going to do this beautiful thing that we do of trying to talk about that which cannot be talked about. If we want to use our language to aspire, if we want to articulate our deep longings and hopes and aspirations, we must know that all of our efforts are at best transient metaphors. When I got kicked out of our denomination... This concept was one of the sticking points because the notion that we couldn't talk about God and be sure that we got it right, that was problematic for them. The concern was if we cannot claim solid ground in our talk about God, then how do we know that the Buddhists or the Muslims or the Hindus aren't right about God? And that was created as an argument ad absurdum. I can't even remember the Latin. In other words, come on, Doug, let me tell you how wrong you are because look what will this, where this will take us. And I had to say, yeah, <laughs> that is the problem. Now, in the end, after a bunch of defense papers that I wrote with a great deal of trepidation, one of the folks on the tribunal had to concede that if we take our own traditions seriously... If we allow that we cannot contain God, if we don't pin down God with certitude, that's exactly what happens. That's what I meant a moment ago by saying this is a demanding process to go through. This is very difficult to go through. When I was on the rethinking journey, long before we ever did it as a community, long before I ever wrote a book, long before I had to go up and make a defense paper to the doctrinal committee, this was scary stuff because I had to face within myself my own fear that once fixed certitude is gone, what are we doing? But here's what our tradition tells us. The best wisdom. Now you can find lots of texts that will tell you God does this and doesn't do that. God likes this and doesn't like that. There's lots of there. But under them is this constant theme that never goes away. Whatever you say about God is at best temporary. Whatever you say about God is best incomplete and inadequate. 
That's a truth so deeply bedded in our tradition that if you want to fight it, you're going to have to go up against 5,000 years of our heritage. Certitude about God is not ours to have. So, what's the point? <laughs> That's a whole lot of interesting history, a lot of interesting theology, but what's the point? What's the relevance for living our lives? Well, it turns out quite a lot. We each carry deep in our minds some story about ultimacy in a code word often used as God. Whatever notion got laid down in our experience early on, it is profoundly influential in our lives. So we all picked up a story along the way. You might have picked up a story about there is no God. That's one of the common stories. Another common story is God is a male authority figure. You might carry a God is your best buddy story. There are as many metaphor stories about God as, as there are people who use them. Now, there are a few that have emerged as culturally shared stories about God. God is our Father, who art in heaven. That's one of the common ones. God is our King. God is our Bridegroom. God is our Wisdom Mother. That's common in the book of Proverbs. So these God stories, these shared God stories, become shared because as God metaphors go, they have been profoundly helpful for a lot of people. They have led many of us into some kind of a deep experience, some kind of a meaningful experience. But here's the thing, as revered as they are and as helpful as they are and as illuminating as they are, they are only metaphors and they are incomplete and they are transient and they are passing. And the reason that matters is because in their inadequacy, all they can do is point us to a partial experience of the divine. Now that partial might be beautiful, that partial might be powerful, but in the partialness, it can actually keep us from other ways that we experience the divine. These are limited, these metaphors, these are limited insights into the nature of the divine and consequently they will limit our experience of the divine. Now, as I was thinking about just practical ways that this affects us, I came up with a couple and so here's a couple that affect our day-to-day -day lives. This notion, this ineffability of God notion from which uh, I personally and our community in general have uh, developed a lot of things, this is why we as a community don't think that we have to fight against science. We don't have to fight psychology and we don't have to fight the Big Bang and we don't have to fight evolution because the ineffability says there is a truth bigger than the fixed one that we got. This is also the root system from which has grown our willingness to listen to other religions our willingness to listen across the political divides and see that the other people who think the other way might have something to offer, our willingness to bring an open heart and an open mind to people whose sexuality doesn't work out like our own does. It started with this notion, the ineffability of God. If the stories that we tell about God are partial and incomplete, if our tradition prohibits us from holding too tight a grip on knowing that we know what we know, then we probably don't have the market cornered on truth either.
Our tradition begins with an ancient warning, and it says bad things happen to you when your God gets fixed. When your God gets containable, bad things happen to you when you practice idolatry. But it's just as true that once our story about God gets too limited, our availability to wisdom also gets limited because there are places that we are not allowed to go to explore truth and wisdom. If our God is too contained, if our God is too certain, if we are too confident or if we are too definite, it makes our filter get too tight. It limits the kinds of things and it limits the number of things that we are available to when we seek spiritual insight. It limits the kinds of things and it limits the number of things that we are available to when we look for spiritual growth or how to live in this world. A specific, accurate, definitive view of God eliminates spiritual opportunities. A specific, accurate, definitive view of God eliminates spiritual possibilities. Now, as you hear, when we practice meditation, that is one of the best ways we know to disidentify with our compulsive thought patterns. Those deeply rooted narratives that define us and define our days. I was reading some research recently that said meditation is also one of the most effective ways to uh, challenge implicit bias in our own minds, to humanize the other. Well, when we get a fixed take on God, we push back against the contemplative as a practice. One of the, the root ball that made meditation and the contemplative practice so important to our community is that God can't be contained. And so we open up to possibilities that are bigger than can be contained, which is exactly what meditation does. It says, let me take my fixed truth and let me rest from it for a while. Let me take my fixed notions and my certitudes and let me rest from them for a while. And in the resting, let me allow myself to be available to that to which I might not have been available in advance. When we have a fixed take on God, we tend to have a fixed take on everything. When we have a fixed take on God, we tend to have a fixed take on what comprises the spiritual life. When we have a fixed take on God, maybe it's that God is Father. And if that's the case, then we have to walk this journey as children. Now that's good. And it's been good for me. It's been good for many people. But it's not lifelong, forever, amen, good. It's not a big enough narrative to take us through this whole life. When God is male, we have to grapple with our faulty ideas about and our hurtful experience of males. And there's a whole lot of problems with males in our culture. Or when God is human, when we narrow God down to some kind of super big version of what humanity looks like, then we have to experience God in the way that we experience humans. That one limits us deeply. Here's just one illustration that came up in these conversations this last couple of weeks. Every human being has a line, a line that when crossed breaks relationship. And when our fixed metaphor for God has a human shape, then we can't help but have a line that when we cross it, breaks relationship with God. Now, maybe somebody told us where God's break it is line is 
Or maybe when we did the really bad thing, we assumed that was God's break it line. But there's a line. And once we cross it, the big one, like every other human being in the earth, we know it's broken now. There's no way back into relationship, no way back to the good life. And so many people carry a deep sense of loss about having squandered their chance. Redemption is a wonderful story for other people. But for me, I broke the future. I squandered my chance. That story dominates a lot of people's lives. And once that's our God, that's our story. And once that's our story, it defines what we look for and it defines what we find. Because sure enough, there's a lot of data out there that will tell you when you have screwed up this badly, there's no way back. Our stories, stories about God are always too small. A God whose line can be crossed, that's just one iteration of a God that's too small. There are a million iterations and they limit us and they constrain us and they dominate our days when we allow our metaphors for God to become fixed and certain. Even good stories, even beautiful stories about God with enough time will in the end betray us. What starts as a beautiful story that is so life-giving and life-affirming with God, when it becomes fixed, it will eventually betray us because God can't be fixed. God can't be made certain. And so, Holy Spirit within us, may ours be hearts that are pliable and may our images of God remain supple so that our hearts can consistently adapt to bigger and bigger truths, so that our lives can consistently adapt to beauty that is more and more beautiful. May that be our experience as we follow Jesus. Amen.